You're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think Sparknotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Chicago-based intersex activist and my best friend, Pigeon. Pigeon is a leader in the intersex movement's fight for bodily autonomy and justice. Pigeon's goal is to deconstruct the dangerous myths that lead to violations of intersex people's human rights, including common irreversible medical procedures performed without consent to make their bodies conform to binary sex stereotypes. Pigeon recently appeared on the cover of National Geographic for their gender revolution issue and is currently teaching an intro to LGBTQ studies at DePaul University. All right, pigeons. Uh, it's getting wild in here. Pigeons I'm taking off. Out. Pigeons taking off their clothes. <laughs> rated <laughs> rated M A for mature oh audiences. Today we're talking with Pigeon about hermaphrodites and the medical invention of sex by Alice Drager. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, we like to ask everybody who they are, what they do, and why. My name is Pigeon. I'm an intersex person. I'm. Um, I'm mixed race, so I'm white and I'm Mexican. I'm mixed gender, I'm non-binary, and I'm also mixed sex, because I'm intersex, so I'm both male and female, but also neither male or female. So I'm mixed everything. I fight for the rights of intersex people to exist freely in the bodies that they were born with. All right, so hey, Paige is here as well. Um, Pigeon, can you talk a little bit about this book, why you picked it? So this book to me, and why I picked it, I feel like I need to preface it by saying that I don't fully support the author anymore. Mm. Um, the author has recently come out as a TERF, like a trans exclusionary radical, radical feminist. feminist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she. You taught wrote, me that term. I did? Can yeah. You, it you did, yeah. So, trans exclusionary radical feminists are feminists um, who believe. In feminism, but they also believe that trans women do not have the same, mm-hmm. um, what's it called, like a uh, experience as mm-hmm. uh, as biological quote mm-hmm. unquote women, and mm-hmm. so thus they which is bullshit, which is bullshit, and they and their belief is you know saying that they carry their male privilege quote unquote mm-hmm. from before the time they transition so that they don't have that same girlhood experience, mm-hmm. and it's someone who's kind of like a mishfest proponent, like someone mm-hmm. who was very Pro Mishfest mm-hmm. would also be like a trans. Ex- Mishfest is the Michigan Music Women's Festival. Does it even still happen? No, because they were turfs and they got sh- <laughs> they they, they <laughs> ba- shut them down. They got shut down basically. They they ran out of money. Yeah. and I think yeah. their motto was "Women Born Women." Yeah, was but yeah. I was there once. I went mm-hmm. for research purposes, mm. and um, <laughs> there was people there wearing red um, t-shirts cut up around their arms. And red shirts, and that signified women born women only should wow. be at the camp or the music festival. Because the year before I came, people wore white, and the people who wore white were signifying trans uh, women belong here, the TWBH. Yeah. Yeah. So the next year, I came on the back last year, which was like uh-huh. women born women only, which is so interesting because I was an intersex person right, with XY right. chromosomes yeah. in this like land, as they call it. So that's where this turf feminism comes yeah. out of. And the author of this book recently defended turf feminism. Mm. 
But I don't want people to think like I support her because I picked this book. I just want mm-hmm. y'all to know I support the book and mm-hmm. not the author. That's a really good okay. point. There, can you just define what is intersex? Um, for a lot of folks I know probably don't know what that term is. Unless you've seen the BuzzFeed video with Pigeon in it that explains yeah. what intersex is. That was super helpful. Um, but can you just define it for us? Intersex is an umbrella term for people born with sex traits or sex characteristics ranging from your chromosomes, your genitalia, or your reproductive organs that don't allow the person to fit into the traditional definitions of what society says is either a male or a female, a typical male or female body. Intersex is as common as up to 1.7% of the human population, which is the same more or less percentage of people born with naturally born with red hair. So if you know a redhead, chances are you might know an intersex person as well. Mm. So when we talk, when we're talking about intersex people, we're talking about it, it's about your body and 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 how the body creates, how society creates binaries around our body. Yes, and our bodies don't fit that binary mm. um, because of the rigid definitions that our society has for for those for those definitions of, the, mm-hmm. of male and female. The term intersex relates to hermaphrodite because that was the word. Instead of intersex, mm-hmm. people in the, in the world were called, with my, with my intersex type of body, were called hermaphrodites. Um, hermaphrodite, though, was a misnomer because hermaphrodite means, in the traditional sense, or the biological sense, that one, one can have, um, one can reproduce with, them, with their own self so that they wouldn't need a, another physical being to to have sex with or whatever to reproduce but you could reproduce as yourself whatever like so a worm for instance i think you would know about this composting um (laughs) like worms i think i don't know if it's all worms but i know like i think earthworms Mm -hmm. they can um i think they could they have like both male and female sex organs and then they can reproduce uh offspring uh, Mm -hmm. without having sex with something else humans cannot do that so even though you're intersex you can't just uh reproduce uh a child or another Mm -hmm. like what's it called offspring or whatever um so the term is a misnomer so intersex i think was introduced later on in the 1900s and it's a better term uh because it's not as stigmatizing Mm -hmm. so anyways this book is titled the is titled hermaphrodites and the medical invention of sex and because it's more about the history, so before the term intersex came into play. And it, so it's talking about when people were still called hermaphrodites. What does it mean, the medical invention of sex? Like, what is that actually addressing? <laughs> you know, as I was saying that, I'm like, man, I don't even remember what the title is about. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I could say that, um, well, she says this in the beginning of the book, and it, it's similar to, to the construction of queerness or homosexuality. Um, homosexuality is framed as coming after heterosexuality and being abnormal or different and weird and strange and whatever by certain people. Um, and so we, I grew up thinking like, well, homose- heterosexuality must have came first because that's normal mm-hmm. and homosexuality as a term or people must have came second because that's abnormal. Um, same with intersex. She was saying that intersex, it seems like that would have came second and that like normal bodies or whatever would have like, yeah, come first, but it's not true. It's like it's only until um, people started, uh, like, classifying her people as hermaphrodites or as abnormal mm-hmm. that they then came up with the concept of a normal body. So our bodies 
kind of allow for the medical invention of sex, mm. quote unquote, which is like the normal, the invention of normal sex mm. and abnormal sex came about because there was the classifi- this obsession with a lot of classifications back then in mm-hmm. the turn of the century. Um, but speaking specifically to hermaphrodites, there was this obsession with like saying, you're a hermaphrodite because X, Y, Z, and you're abnormal because of this. And then those bodies over there who fit the binary are normal. Mm-hmm. And so then she talks about hermaphrodites allowing for the medical invention of sex it's because it kind of came after hermaphrodites so mm-hmm. it's like the invention the medical the mm-hmm. medicalization of mm-hmm. sex basically was it around the same time because i know homosexuality was also listed as a medical like a, a medical condition yeah uh, right so like what was the time frame for both of these did they overlap or was it one before the other yeah actually i think it does kind of overlap um but the Speaking specifically to intersex people, or her, let's just say hermaphrodites, but again, we shouldn't be really using that language, right. but um, I will use it, you know, because I, I think you're all educated out there, and, <laughs> and you're going to listen to me. And that's me the name of the book. It's the name of the book. And but we're not using that term anymore. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. not really going to be, like, using that against intersex people. I, I, I trust you listeners. Um, But so, so hermaphrodites, this book is charting the time, say, the 1800s, and before the 1800s, so when intersex people were just seen as... Um, hermaphrodites and they were given in some societies the choice to live as either a man or a woman but they weren't forced to undergo surgery to to live that choice out so for instance there's a a story in here that's pretty popular it's the story of a french hermaphrodite named hercule barbin and i believe this is in the 1700s of france and this person like when they hit a certain age they had to go to a judge and the judge was like you have to pick uh, male you want to be a man or a woman which kind of sounds messed up but at least they kind of gave this person some choice in that when they were old enough to decide because they had genitalia that wasn't quote-unquote you know it was abnormal it was um, ambiguous genitalia this person had so the, the judge was like you must pick a gender which is so interesting that mm-hmm. like think about separation of like whatever and it's mm-hmm. not it's like the, the legal system was getting caught up with people's personal genders but okay so the so herculean goes up and was like all right i'm gonna be this i think i think they chose male then the story goes into the evolution from that time period where the judges were were kind of um dictating what sex or what gender of intersex person could live as to the time of she calls it in the book the age of the gonads and that age is pre-19 is pre-1900s and that is a very that's like a crux of the book whether you're have xy chromosomes or xx chromosomes so whether you're typically a male or typical female not typically but a typical male or typical (laughs) female you're gonna start development with these gonads instead of having ovaries or testes so think of it like play-doh like two play-doh balls in your abdomen floating around chilling (laughs) not knowing what to do until the fourth month of pregnancy happens, so you're in your mom's, you're in your mom's womb, in that uterus, chilling, and chilling. The, and the fourth month comes along, and now if you have typically if you have XY chromosomes, you're gonna have something called the SRY gene activate, and the SRY gene is only gonna talk to people with XY chromosomes. It's gonna hit that Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. So when the when the SRY gene is like, yo, are you listening? And the Y chromosome is like, I hear you. Then those balls of Play-Doh, which are gonads, descend typically into the scrotum area. And also I didn't mention, you don't only, we all start out with gonads, but we also all start out with typical female genitalia on the external, how it looks. So mm-hmm. we all have labia and a clitoris whether you have XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes. 
Um, so the, these gonads drop down because the SRY gene called out to the XY chromosome. And he, he's like, the, the chromosomes are like, all right, now we got to go down to the scrotum area. So to become a scrotum, though, the labia has to fuse. And the labia fuses in the, and becomes a scrotum in people with XY chromosomes. And that's why you see that line, which is called a scrotal raphe. What? That's the, line, <laughs> that's the line in the ball sack. So what? that line is what used to be a child's labia. So that happens, and that's cool. And then the clitoris extends after the fourth month and becomes the penis in people with XY chromosomes. This is all talking typically what wow. happens. Now, if you have XX chromosomes, you don't really understand the SRY gene. The SRY gene doesn't really talk to you because it only affects the Y chromosome. And so you keep that quote-unquote female, it's called phenotype, that external look, and your labia kind of separates even more. The clitoris just does its thing it becomes a clitoris stays a clitoris but kind of you know and then instead of getting testes that move down to the scrotum those gonads which i'm calling balls of play um <laughs> become ovaries so that's important to understand because this is called the age of gonads and in this period of time 1850s to 1910 doctors become obsessed with understanding a person's quote-unquote true sex by figuring out what their gonads are. So it's very important also for me to mention that intersex or hermaphrodites, hermaphroditic bodies pose a threat to the male-female binary that we in the mm -hmm. society, in the Western society, take for granted. And, and not take for granted, but kind of enforce upon people. Mm -hmm, yeah. So we're like, yo, there's only men and there's only women. And then all of a sudden, there's hermaphrodites, right? And, and they, before, you know, they were kind of just fly under the radar or just kind of be seen as freaks or whatever. But now, hit early 1900s and we had this new medical technology called anesthesia and biopsies well anesthesia which allow for biopsies because you could knock a person out go inside of them take open up their bodies see what's going on in there take samples send it off so now the age of gonads is the time when intersex people no longer were just told by a judge pick a gender now they were put under the eye of a doctor and and they were looked their gonads were looked at and then they were saying, okay, so if you had testicular gonads or testes, tissue, testicular tissue in your gonads, even if they were in your abdomen, you're actually, you're not a hermaphrodite. The threat is no problem anymore to the binary. You're actually a male. Even if you have breasts and hips and long hair and identify as a woman and you're married to a man and you identify as straight, if they found that you had testes, hmm. They were like, you're a man, the threat is absolved. Um, and you're also gay now, by the way, because you're married to a man, so you need to get out of that relationship. Um, because homosexuality at the same time was also being categorized, and it was also seen as like a threat to heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. And then if those gonads were ovarian in, in tissue, they were, they were declared female by these doctors, and the same thing followed from there. So that's the age of wow. gonads. Okay. Wait, so... Okay. <laughs> Um, I was gonna have the same reaction. I was, like, I was gonna say, wait, hold yeah. on. First of all, that was hold excellent. On. That was amazing. Uh, that was remarkable. I wish drops you could mic. see it because it yeah. was as precise in it. Wait, drops mic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to just follow up now. So if you're just an average person like, like me, like how would I even learn about intersex? Because you don't learn about this in school, mm -hmm. and so how would one even have access to this information? Well, that's that's why I said this book. That's why I picked this book because it's. It's it's like it tells a hidden story. It tells an untold story. I think I think it's her or Foucault or someone who talks about subjugated knowledges. It's it's a knowledge that's been subjugated outside of the realm of 
knowable knowledge. So it's one of those things you have to dig up on your own. And unless you're intersex or unless you're specifically interested in this topic, you're never going to know this stuff. Mm -hmm. Even if you watch the BuzzFeed video, we had four minutes or something in that video. Mm -hmm. We can't talk about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't need to promote your show on your show, but I think that's why this show is important because you guys take books and help get that and break it down and get that Mm -hmm. knowledge out to people without necessarily... I mean, you just don't even have to know you want to know about this, and then boom, you're learning about this. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what's good about this. Mm-hmm. I have two part, a two-part question. I got uh, two yeah. parts. <laughs> the first is, so are you saying that that I could go to the doctor and they could cut me open oh, and yes. I could find out that I'm yep. sex and not know? Let me tell you a story. So there's what? a reason. There's I actually just... Is that text- what happened to you? Or no, no, no. Okay, okay. So actually someone... Here, someone I know that's... um out there in the world has a hernia is going to get a hernia surgery right now and i just texted them today and was like i hope everything goes well and also did you know that the number one way people find out that intersex kids with my condition my my variation are intersex is because when we're little girls as children being raised as little girls we have a quote-unquote hernia we go under the knife and they open up the hernia and they actually find testes in this child who they thought was a girl because it's very rare for children to get hernias unless they're being a abused um, or they're like neglected and they're just crying all the time and they like pop a hernia. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's generally a testy that pops out and they find out all the kids intersex. Um, but so I for you, gonads turned into ovaries. Nope. They could turn into testes or ovaries. So depending on your chromosomes. So does this person not have ovaries? This person that I've just talked to? Yeah. Oh, no. They're probably not intersex. I was just like... Oh, oh. I was just like... Okay. Because she's an adult. So, generally, like, she does have a hernia. She's like, her line of work... She but dance. you were just bringing up that I was that, letting the hernia, her know that, like, that, that as she, if you were an infant girl and you were a child, a lot of times when you go under the knife for a hernia as an infant, they oh, find oh, out I you see. have a testy or something. Okay, gotcha. Um, and... Okay. But that's only one way to find out. Yeah. And that's... So maybe this is too specific, but just that would mean that the oh, gonads so. didn't turn into ovaries. They stayed as testes, but inside. Yes. So they that, probably don't have ovaries. Exactly. Okay. Or there's intersex people who are, they're called quote unquote true hermaphrodites. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have one ovary on one side and one mm-hmm. testy on the other. Mm-hmm. Or each gonad has testicular and ovarian tissue in each one. Okay. So there's a mixture. Okay. So okay, there's like mm-hmm. over 30 intersex variations. Okay, so I think you were getting at this already earlier, but, okay, so in this, what I think it's important that you're saying is that it's challenging our idea of what it means to be male or female, because it's what's suggesting is that there's, right, what does it mean to say, be a woman, right, where I could live my whole life thinking that I am a female person, go to the doctor and find out, oh, I I have one ovary and one testes, so what, what is, right, it fucks with that idea. Um, Is that right? Yeah, making sense. Okay. Second thing is, what is the pressure? You said this earlier, but what is the pressure that's pushing for folks to, to, for for example, the story you started out with to have to go up and and make a legal statement as to which sex they were choosing to identify with, or or currently, what's the the, the pressure that happens in the age of the gonads? Where is that coming from? I think it's an obsession with binaries and dualities. Um, not dualities, but binaries. And mm-hmm. and in binaries, you allow someone to have power over someone else. So if a society has the binary of good and bad, um, uh, then you can say the people that are good are deserving of X, and the people that are bad are deserving of or not deserving of X. And if you have a binary of male and female, you have pe- male people who are considered male have more power and deserving of power and like property and etc and females are not deserving of property and power etc 
And so when a third, when a hermaphrodite comes into the picture, they blur that boundary. And so now the society can't understand how to um, put power over or take power away from that person. And at the same time, that body threatens the stability of that system that allows for power to be over. Because they, you can't all of a sudden say, oh, like this is a natural system. That's the way things are. Because hermaphrodites are like, hello, we're, tw- we're 2% of the population. And what about us? And mm-hmm. so, and what does... It, it brings like a social panic into this this belief that there's a stability to this binary of sex and gender. The same way probably that like mixed race people fuck up the binary of like black and white or brown and white. Like there's, it's it's this blurring of boundaries that creates uncomfortness in society. And this, you know how people always ask mixed people or that like, where are you from or mm-hmm. what are you? And it's like that not, they don't really care where they're from, but they're trying to figure out how they can establish themselves as p- having power over that person so they can or, define them as another. Or what box they could put them in. Exactly. Right? Because people you, need like... They need those boxes. Right. And, I, and I don't think that it's natural, right? Do you think it's a natural thing to want to put people into boxes or do you think that's no, like society? Has... I think it's an artifact of white supremacy, yeah, which yeah, is like, yeah. um, how do I categorize you as other so I can mm-hmm. define myself as normal again? Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden... I can't even tell how to put you in a box, mm-hmm. and thus that rattles my identity as as supreme or position, whatever, mm-hmm. as having white supremacy or whatever mm-hmm. they claim. It's, it's being more like normal, or mm-hmm. you know. And so they need to understand again: how do I put you in that box? How do I make you other again? And I think so. Hermaphrodite bodies rattle those boxes and rattle society's understanding of how to define people as other. There was still like mm-hmm. this, like. This treatment of intersex people in Philadelphia, for instance, where when they were dead, they were, well, even while they were alive, he was clearly ostracized. Or even if he wasn't ostracized, he felt he couldn't fit into society, like he wasn't lovable. So he led this, like, quiet, like, not quiet, but, like, solitude, life of solitude. I think he killed himself, too. Mm. Um, And then afterwards, they were treated like dirt to the to the point where they were just cut up yeah. and then put on display and then like talk the people talk shit about their body like mm-hmm. afterwards which is has overlaps with like Sarah Bartman and people like her who were put in like human zoos and then like paraded their body parts were paraded and then after she died they did the same thing they cut her genitals up and her brain and put it in a fucking tube or not tube Can a glass jar that is? yeah so Sarah Bartman was a person from South Africa she had some colonizers from France come over and talk her into coming up to France and they lured her in with like lots of money and like uh, promises of fame and they said if you just come over and we put you know we let people come look at your naked body this and that she went to Europe you know looking for that life or whatever or tricked into it she was basically trafficked to Europe from South Africa by rich by like uh, traffickers from France and you know, she didn't get the money they promised her. She ended up being paraded in a cage in front of uh, white onlookers from from Europe. And when she passed away, very soon after getting up there to France, the state of France took her body and put it in jars of embalming fluid or whatever they put the fluid in to preserve a body part and put it in their museum mm. in the UK, I believe, or France. And it wasn't until like 1970s that I believe it was Nelson Mandela asked for the repatriation of her body mm. parts to come back from the museum there to um, South Africa. And that's she was part of the whole host of thousands of people from the colonies right. who were put in these human zoos in, in, in the colonizing countries to kind of show the people of those colonizing countries like whatever, like mm. natural life in the colonies or whatever. Which I just learned from Marion Caba's tweet today about postcards. And in the postcards, they show 
um, human zoos and stuff mm. like that. So mm. I always think of uh, Sarah Bartman, also known as Hot and Tot Venus. That's the other name for her. Oh, I she has a bunch of names. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I always think of her when I think of these earlier people because you'll see like the bodies were always put on display. And this pose I actually saw exactly on the postcards today. They would go to the colonies of Africa and make women pose like this, which is like a very model-esque, like seductive, I guess, pose. Mm-hmm. Putting, the Putting the body display, parts though. on display. Yeah, yeah. Like exotifying For the male bodies, gaze yeah. and the colonizer gaze. Yeah. Um, anyways, they did that to intersex people and then it's similar to how they did it to um, people in Africa at the time of mm. the colon- colonies. You're sharing a lot of personal narratives or personal experiences and stories. Does this book do a lot of that or is it mostly statistics and data? So, no, actually, it's not a lot of statistics and data because she's a historian at heart and she actually says something really good. The sick, like the poor, leave very few archives behind them. Mm. And this has equally been the case for those not necessarily quote-unquote sick but nonetheless labeled anatomically abnormal and therefore subject to medical attention. Hermaphrodites, like the poor and sick, have left few personal archives. And she, and then she goes on where she actually does include firsthand stories of intersex people. But there's like maybe three um, in this chapter. And, and then I think she does have... And then like the other stories in here are the narratives about these people that the doctors wrote up basically. But like she said, like a lot of intersex people weren't asked for their story. They were seen as like sick or abnormal and needing like this intervention from the medical industrial complex and um to be fixed or whatever mm-hmm. and it's not until really like the 19 early 1990s that you start hearing from actual intersex people so yeah we can't end this podcast without mentioning the age of surgery so after the age of gonads where people would literally search deep inside of an intersex body for like a material marker of one's true sex we enter the age of surgery, which is the 1950s to the present day. And this era is marked by a doctor named John Money. Instead of looking for like a biological marker of true sex, believed in like understanding someone's psychosocial gender identity and that that, that gender identity must match um, their genital anatomy. And in order to make that genital anatomy match their gender marker or their gender identity, they would give that child surgery at a very early age in a very early time in their life. Um, so now, the child who was seen as having an ambiguous sex or gender, the thought at this time was, no, they actually do. They actually are male or female, but the sex was not finished developing in the uterus. And doctors, with their new technology that advanced in the 50s, after the anesthesia comes all these technolo- technological advancements and progresses in surgery techniques, especially plastic surgery, and... Actually, it's kind of interesting. The same doctor who was kind of responsible for allowing trans people to get the surgeries that are like body affirming and gender affirming is the same doctor who created the surgeries that were forced upon intersex children against their will. So this Dr. John Money really believed that we were like unbaked people and that doctors would just need to tell parents, don't worry, we can figure out their true sex and finish their sexual development with surgery now so if they have ambiguous genitalia don't worry we're gonna fix that and help it get to the point where it was going to all of the, all the time which is not true our genitalia was is supposed to be the way it is it's intersex genitalia um but again it was a an attempt to make our bodies fit back in the binary that it threatened um 
So yeah. And also it's really important to note that the decisions in the surgery were made for two reasons. One, they really developed, or they were really made, they were inseparable from the heterosexual matrix, which is something she talks about in the book. Basically meaning that like the way they did surgery on our bodies and the decisions they made for us were made with they didn't the decisions that were made for us didn't allow for other sexual practices or sexualities so there was never a thought that like an intersex kid could be queer and enjoy different types of sexual intimacy the main type of sexual intimacy was always thought of as penis to vagina penetration and thus the surgery that followed from that was a surgery that allowed a person to have penis to vagina sexual penetration or whatever so and then the second thing that dictated the surgeries was that basically just the technological um, limitations of the time of plastic surgery on genitalia and that it's just quote-unquote easier to construct a hole. So that's why a lot of intersex kids um, end up being raised female from this time forward, almost 80 or 90%. So the moment we're in is the age of surgery. Yes. Where every day children, particularly infants, are... Parents are being told, right, your you your child needs a surgery to finish what didn't happen while you were pregnant, and they do the surgery on, on babies every day. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what it reminds me of is like I remember growing up and hearing about female genital mutilation. That's mm-hmm. what it sounds. That it feels somewhat. It is similar. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. It, like okay. Um, yeah. We use the term intersex genital mutilation, so it's a direct copy of that. Or. And but also you the way. I, like, I relate to hearing about it as well growing up, but I always heard about it in other countries, exactly. right? And so you never mm-hmm. actually think about this sort of mutilation happening here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Is this more... Com- Sorry if I just cut off your question, but is this more common in the United States or is it, like, worldwide? It's worldwide. And it happens... It started here. It started in um, Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. The techniques were perfected there. Wow. Um, John Hopkins in Baltimore? John Hopkins University Hospital or whatever in Baltimore, Maryland. And his team developed the techniques, and then that spread from his team to other teams in the U.S., which then spread to Europe, which then spread to India, which then spread to China, which then spread to Africa, which spread everywhere. So um, it's kind of like military techniques or police techniques here that get developed here but then Mm -hmm. they get spread everywhere and then all of a sudden you realize they're saying the same lies they're doing the same techniques and it's like doesn't matter it's globalization of these surgery techniques Mm -hmm. and the the secrecy and the surgery and the shame together gets exported as a product of the u.s it's a very it's a small percentage of intersex people who get the surgery um so i was joking the other day i should i should play the lottery because like a small percentage of 1.7% get surgery. I'm like, damn, I hit that. So it's like getting hit with lightning. So um, the other ways that people who are intersex or not are affected by this type of policing of gender and sex um, is basically any girl or any boy who steps out of um, typical or I guess typical um, gender roles. Mm -hmm. So when somebody... um, subverts those gender roles that are prescribed to them they either get told you know you're a tomboy or you're you're a fag or a sissy let's just stick with that those two that girl is two. a tomboy that girl is yeah shout out <laughs> princess, princess Nokia. Nokia. um <laughs> so 
um, the, the surgery is just like the most glaring example of the manifestation of the ways in which we force people into these boxes. And I think like one of the best quotes in the world, which is like that I use when I give presentations is if normal were normal, you could leave it alone. But because there's punishments in place when for people that quote unquote aren't normal, then that proves that normal isn't normal on its own. That it's like the punishments that are in place by society that have to create that normal. Just There's just tons of things like you said, like there's tons of movies and, and media and songs and TV shows where just literally hermaphrodites or people with hermaphroditic features or intersex features in their body are the butt of a joke. And so it kind of silences people. So even if they do find out they're intersex one day, like for instance, when I found out, I didn't want to tell nobody because of the shame and the stigma associated with it. Um, I remember growing up as a kid and people laughing at hermaphrodite jokes and I was laughing too because I didn't know it's intersex. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we have, um, I guess like a visceral, uh, way of, of putting people in their place. And then we also have the silent or the invisible ways that are, um, more, I guess, rhetorical and, and in language and in the way we like control, we control people through other, with like a billion different ways in the society. And surgery is like the tip of the iceberg, but there's like a million other things that lead to like what is the worst thing for intersex people, which is shame. And I think it's the worst thing for any person in the world is to carry shame. I just think that like, we are like a hyper example of, um, and at least in talking about sex and gender, um, of, of people who carry a lot of shame. Just uh, talking about the difference between the power of doctors in the medical field, which often isn't, when we're talking about who has power, I feel like that's a really important gap in the conversations I see happening is power of, of the medical field and, and the, the labeling that they can create versus the power of the quote-unquote freak, the power of the quote-unquote abnormal. Uh, and if you can ex- can speak to those. Thank you. I really appreciate these questions because I just can go way past all this stuff. Um, sex, when speaking in this way, is about the biology, the biological markers present in and outside of someone's body that then allow them to be designated as either male or female. Um, it's it's different than gender and your gender identity. Gender identity is is the gender that you feel or identify with. It's um, it's a it's a it's different than biology. It's not your genitalia. It's it's your it's your way of understanding yourself in the world in relationship to others and relationship to people you're dating and your friends and the society at large. And gender is is an identity that can change and it can it's. It's like amorphous. It can just, it can just blah. It could just mm-hmm. t- tomorrow. It could be something different than today, and or it could be rigid and same throughout your whole life. And all of that is valid. Um, so traditionally, you can hear gender as like a woman or a man. Um, and traditionally, her sex is male or female. But we know that those both of those things. I don't know if we know this, but we it's it's gender. We know exists on a spectrum. I think more and more we're talking about that. But also people are starting to talk about how sex exists on a spectrum as well. And intersex is um a very good example of why we need to start talking about sex as a spectrum as well because intersex shows up all over that spectrum. The second question was um doctors have no power, and I say that because to disrupt the narrative that they do have all the power, which mm-hmm. they technically traditionally are thought of to have that, and and I understand that. And yes, like if I'm gonna be like. Yeah, they do have some power, right? And I understand that. So maybe these doctors are insecure and they project their insecurities on these little intersex kids and think, oh my gosh, they could never live in this world looking abnormal or ambiguous or different or not normal, quote unquote. And then they try to fix us and they actually think they might be doing something good for us. They use that power, but that's not real power. We know what power is. Power is like 
when you respect somebody and you allow that person to have autonomy and have their bodily integrity intact from the time that they're born, allow them to make choices about themselves and respect that. That's real power where you don't feel intimidated by somebody's difference. But so the power of the freak is the power that that freaks actually that quote unquote like not you know the power of the freak we're just gonna say that the power of the freak is that they they get to live well sometimes they get to live in their authentic selves but they get to take the blinders off of society basically um the society that says there's only two types of ways of being in this world good and bad or there's disposable people and non-disposable people or there's intersex people and then there's like normal people the power of the freak and especially in like the intersex case is like the power that liberates people from a sex and gender binary that is false. So intersex people, I think, or, or freaks in general, anybody who doesn't fit in a binary or a quote-unquote normal um, way of being or whatever, um, I think they represent liberation for people and an alternative way of existing in the world. And those are that's like that's real power. Why do you think organizers need to read this book? Well, I was thinking of that question this morning when I woke up. And I was like, write it down. And I was like, no, nah, you'll remember. And then I forgot. I think it's important for anyone to understand intersex because especially when you read this book, you get to see how long this process has been going on and that change is gradual, um, at least in our case, and, and to not give up because things might not be going as fast as you want them to be. Um, and I think this is a good lesson from this book is that like, for about 200 years, like we were pretty much just taken advantage of. And it's not so, since the 1990s that people in the intersex community have been um, organizing and using activism as a form of resistance. And shit really hasn't changed. As this book says, um, the aim of doctors 100 years ago in society is the same today, which is to reduce and eliminate hermaphroditism using every tool possible. The only thing that's changed is the tools. So they've used different tools and tactics to try to erase our threat to the binary. But at the same time, because this book kind of cuts off about 10 years ago, in the last 10 years alone, there's been a surge and upswell of intersex activism and intersex youth coming out and being out as intersex and being proud to be intersex. And I think that's a good story for anyone to see is like, at the same time where things might look like it's taking forever to make change, but at the same time in the intersex world, um, so much can happen in a, in a week too. And so I think it gives people hope. And especially in the time of Trump where it feels like, oh my God, this is never going to end. Um, one of these four years is going to end and, and what irreparable damage is going to happen in these four years? How are we going to pick up the pieces? I think when you see this book and you see like this stuff's been going on for 100 or 200 years and we're still here and we're doing amazing things right now and people are like, really, I think in the next 10 years we're going to change everything and stop these surgeries and make these doctors apologize. And You probably don't know it, but you probably have an intersex person in your organization or amongst your youth or whatever. Like yesterday I went to an event that was not intersex at all. It was a film screening and a kid came up to me and was like, I'm intersex. And so that was great. And if someone were going to just pick up the book and read a certain chapter to try to like get a mm -hmm. glimpse of what this book is talking about, what chapter would you recommend? I would recommend the last, I think it's the last chapter, the epilogue, categorical imperatives. <laughs> um, because it's a good, like it summarizes the whole book. And there's this quote, which is my favorite quote. Uh, genital ambiguity is corrected, quote unquote, not because it is threatening to the infant's life, but because it is threatening to the infant's culture. And this book, this chapter also has actual like stories from intersex people and activists. And so I think, and then it talks about the future and where we're moving and where we can move. And she says, 
we're at an amazing time right now where we actually have all the medical advances that we need or whatever, but um, what we really need at this time is for medical providers to have honest conversations with intersex people and their families and allow medicine to be there to serve intersex people, not to harm them. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's the future is like right there. And that's the last chapter, the epilogue. Nice. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast Thank and talking with us. Thank you for coming here. Is there anything that organizers can do in Chicago to support intersex activists? You can um, refer intersex people you know to me to, because I have an intersex persons of color support group that I'm starting, a peer-led support group at Affinity, and um, we need all the people we can get. You can also refer people to the AISDSD.org website, which is the national support group um, for people that are all colors. Um, you don't have to be a person of color for that support group. And that's like the number one key thing that intersex people generally need is support and to know they're not alone. And the same thing for our parents. And so there's a parent support group with that too. So I think that's the most important thing I would tell people is to go to AISDSD.org um, you don't have to have AIS to join or be a part of it. They're going to change the name soon. All intersex variations can show up. And we have an in-person um, conference support group every summer. Mm -hmm. And there's scholarships for first-time goers that pay your flight and your hotel and your conference fee. So I would really recommend that. And there's also a Facebook group. If you're not an in-person type of person, you could join a private Facebook group and get support that way. Um, so that's the main thing to start. And then just hit me up and I can always direct you to resources. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Lit Review Podcast. Tune in next Monday where we'll talk about the book Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything by Becky Bond and Zach Exley with immigrant justice organizer B. Lowe. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad. Keep reading. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're Everyone good. stop talking about farts. Fart, fart, fart. Monica T is my best friend, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs>